Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Hebrews chapter 13. And we are looking tonight at verses 15 and 16. Title of the message, Simple Virtues. Uh, We move on today in Hebrews chapter 13, and we step into a measure of simplicity. Hebrews has been anything but a simple book as we have walked through it from week to week. Um, There's been a a good number of deep concepts, of important concepts, uh, but a number of simple concepts from time to time as well. And in in a, a sense, we come to one of these this evening. Now, the fact that it's a simple concept does not mean it's simple to bear out in our lives, right? It's simple to understand, and that's a wonderful thing. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's simple to enact. And so we come to a couple of simple virtues in the midst of all of the technical distinctions and the doctrines and the practice, as we have talked for the last several weeks about the nature of grace and have founded ourselves in that ever so important doctrine, we fall back today into ideas which are both fundamental and basic. Important reminders rooted in simple virtues, but which are so very important to the Christian life. So I'm going to read both of our verses, and then after I read both of our verses, then we'll, we'll walk through them one by one. And the Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices, God is well, please. So you notice as we step into verse 15 that we do step very much into context. By him, therefore. And the old adage goes, when you see a therefore or a wherefore, you need to find out what it's there for, right? Because there is some reason why there's a therefore in our text. And in this particular case, our therefore brings us back to the things that we had been talking about last week. That we, as followers of Jesus Christ, have an altar, Whereof those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. And the idea as we walked through that was a call unto the peculiarities of grace in the Christian life. That we are called to follow Jesus out to, to the outside of the camp, as the scripture said, bearing his reproach among men, seeking not for the things of this life, but for the things of the city that is to come. And that forms the basis for the by him that we find here in verse 15. By him, by who? Well, that's by Christ. So we come to this altar, whereof those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And we have the right to eat of this altar by the finished work of Jesus Christ and the blood which was shed for us. And when we come to this place of privilege and to this place of relationship with God, what do we do with it? Well, we do what everyone does when he steps up to an altar. We offer sacrifices. And verses 15 and 16 give us two sacrifices of which we are to offer as an expression of religious devotion within the context of the new covenant. Within the context of the new covenant, we don't offer bullocks on an altar. We don't offer lambs upon an altar. We don't offer goats upon an altar. Our... uh, Our our worship area is not filled with the blood of animals. My clothes are not stained with said blood. There's no horns on an altar by which I, I will rub the blood on those horns. And yet that does not mean that we do not have sacrifices by which to offer unto the Lord. Offer offering the sacrifices of of expressions of love and of devotion to our Savior. 
Now, in the context of the Old Covenant, there were sacrifices to be made on the altar. We talked a little bit about that last week as we talked about the uniqueness of the sin offering, in that the sin offering was the singular offering whereby they would take the animal and they would put the blood on the, on the horns and, and they would burn certain parts, particularly um, the, the call of the liver and the fat thereof, and then they would take the skin and the, the pertinence and all of those things and they would take them outside of the city to be burned. So the burnt offering... The sin offering would represent that, that atonement. There was also a burnt offering rec- representing submission to God's will. There was a peace offering. It was an expression of gratitude to God for his goodness. And then, of course, that sin offering. There was also a guilt offering made to atone for unknown sins. We talked a little bit about that last week as well. And there were the meat offerings, meal offerings, meant to give back to God a portion of what he had given to them through things such as the tithe. But we have a different altar. And upon that altar, we are called to make different sacrifices. There need be no sacrifice for sin and guilt. And the reason why there need be no sacrifice for sin and guilt is because that sacrifice was finished on the cross with Jesus. So there is no, nothing even like a sin or a guilt offering in the Christian life because Jesus was that sin and that guilt offering. But that doesn't mean the Christian life is devoid of making offerings unto the Lord. And as I said, we see two such offerings in our context today. The first of these here in verse 15 is the offering of praise to God continually. And Paul adds specificity to this idea, describing this as the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. In other words, we are called to be a thankful People. Gratitude is something which is becoming more and more rare in society today. In fact, I'm quite comfortable in saying that one of the deepest problems in our society, one of the things that is driving the social ills that are crippling our society today, is a fundamental lack of appreciation or gratitude, a fundamental lack of thanksgiving. See, gratitude is rooted in perspective. But gratitude is not just rooted in perspective. Gratitude also establishes perspective. A thankful person is a person who is looking beyond his own nose, as it were. He is a person who understands that he's not entitled to the things that he has. That God owes you nothing, that society owes you nothing, that nobody owes you anything. One of the great blessings of the modern age is that we have plenty. This is not to say that people don't live in poverty in many parts of the world. Indeed, they do. But that poverty is not necessarily an outworking of scarcity as much as it is, by by a general rule, of corruption. Corrupt men who steal their nation's resources keep their people impoverished for their own benefit. The vast majority of poverty that we see in the world is rooted in said corruption, not necessarily in scarcity of resources. But this blessing of wealth has worked into the minds of the country, our country as I think through this, a fundamentally different understanding of living than what most of the world knows. And those of you that have been out of country before know that this is true. We expect our shelves to be full. We expect our resources to be available. We expect to be able to order something online and have it in a matter of days. And this can work into culture A disposition of entitlement, facing few hardships, 
and even most of these hardships being fundamentally different in kind than the kinds of hardships that most people in history have had to deal with. We call them first world problems, right? The kinds of things like getting a flat tire or running out of hot water or losing electricity for a couple of hours. Truly first world problems. And those are the worst, the, the worst first world problems. We'll complain about how hot or how cold our coffee is, how watered down that drink is. True, upper tier first world problems, right? And entitlement exists in the context of ingratitude. An entitled people is an unthankful people. If I could say it this way, an unthankful people is also an entitled people. An unthankful people is a selfish people, and a selfish people is an unhappy people, no matter how much they have. And the Bible has much to say about thanksgiving, doesn't it? Indeed, 2 Timothy chapter 3 warns us that unthankfulness was going to be a fundamental characteristic of the last days. So the Bible says in verses 1 through 5, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. So this is a list of decidedly negative virtues, right? And there are some really nasty things on this list as it relates to the characteristics or anti-virtues, we might say, of people. Those that are lovers of their own selves and those that are covetous and those uh, that are blasphemers and those that are false accusers and, and, and those who are despisers of those that are good. But we do find some interesting things on this list of absolutely terrible things. We find things such as disobedient to parents, right? And we find unthankfulness. And so, unthankfulness exists in this very, very negative list. But do take note that it is in a list. And these things, nothing that is on this list that Paul gives here in in 2 Timothy happens in a vacuum. And you know what I mean by that? For some of our kids, it doesn't mean that it happens in a vacuum cleaner, right? The idea of a vacuum is a place that has no other, uh, no other characteristics that affect it. So typically speaking, the idea of a vacuum would be uh, an atmosphere-free environment. So when we talk about a vacuum, we're talking about an environment where there are no other factors or variables that can affect something. Scientists like to do experiments, particularly physics experiments, in vacuums because then they don't have to account for things such as coefficients of friction, right? They don't have to account for all of the variables that come from an environment. Environment, And so that's what we mean by a vacuum. We don't mean a cleaner. So none of these things on this list happen in a vacuum, happen outside of other things that are happening in a society. Where do you find the negative virtues of pride and disobedience and blasphemy? And as we've talked about quite a bit in our Sunday morning service in Genesis, hedonism, the idea of pursuit of pleasure at the expense of everything and anything else. Well, where you find these things 
in a depraved society that has turned their back on God, you will also find unthankfulness. And of course, Paul's exhortation here, from such turn away. And as we turn away from these things, then, to turn away from unthankfulness is to turn naturally to thanksgiving. We call that the replacement principle. We find it in Ephesians chapter 4. We find it in Colossians chapter 3. Put off concerning the old man and put on the new man. So we don't just put off the old man. If we put off the old man and we put nothing else on, then we have left a void that is going to be filled by something. And so what do we want to do? We want to put on the new man created in Christ Jesus. And so as we turn from a heart of of unthankfulness, we turn to thankfulness. And we can spend a message, several in fact, walking through all the things that we should be thankful for. As a matter of fact, just before the service, Joel confronted me on such a thing. I don't know where it came from, but he just looked at me and said, Pastor, have you thanked the Lord for your voice today? I said, well, no, I haven't. He said, pulling from some teaching, obviously, the idea of, well, if you only had the things that you were thankful for, how many things would you have? Or something to that effect, right, Joel? Um, You know, good question. If you only had the things that you had thanked God for today, what would you have, right? And then that God is talking about the fact that I was very thankful for my voice going on a year ago, right? After, um, after I had to be intubated and I lost my voice for those six weeks or so. Um, very thankful for that. But the idea here is this concept of thankfulness, which we could spend many messages on. But let's just take a moment to think about a few things together. And we begin with the physical blessings. Now, it's been a relatively difficult year for this church. I don't think any of us would uh, argue that as it relates to things. We've had a tremendous number of health difficulties hit the church at various times. Um, Many unknowns, many um, uncertainties, still dealing with some of those uncertainties. But when we filter the difficulties of this year through a broader lens, we find a different perspective, don't we? we find the tremendous number of blessings that the Lord has given to us. We find the blessing that our bodies, though they may struggle with ailments, heal. And that though we have been through some difficult times, all but one of us is still here. In that God has brought his people across our paths to help us. As I said, even in the loss of our brother in Christ, we cannot be but thankful for the time that God gave us with him, and second, for the joy into which he is ushered, of which we're waiting to join him now. From an earthly perspective, things have not necessarily been easy. But oh, how much there is to be thankful for. And that's before we even consider the spiritual blessings. That's before we even consider so great salvation from sin, justification, imputed righteousness. We've talked a great deal from even our Sunday morning series in Genesis of fear and of shame and of guilt. Do you know that in Christ, fear, shame, and guilt are on the cross with him? You don't have to experience those things. You have freedom. You have the Spirit of God who bears His fruit in you if you are one who has accepted Christ as His Savior. 
You have the things which produce spiritual fruit. So that in times of turmoil, in times of uncertainty, in times where we don't know what's going to happen in the world, in times where our political leaders are making decisions that don't make a whole lot of sense, in times where there's crazy people doing crazy things, and we don't know what that's going to mean for our bottom line, yet we have the peace and the assurance of a God who says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Of a God who compels us to cast all our cares upon him, knowing he cares for us, who's Uh, assured us that the very hairs of our head are numbered, that his Pharaoh does not fall without him knowing that he will care for his own. Christian, I don't know how bad your week was in comparison to other weeks. I don't know all of the struggles that maybe you have gone through of late, although I know many among our, our regulars. But I know the God that we serve. And you do too. And so we both know there's much to be thankful for. And this perspective is intended to bear the fruit of testimony in our lives. The sacrifice of praise to God continually. It's intended to compel us to open our mouths and to testify of the goodness of God, even in the midst of suffering, so that when we consider what Job did in the midst of his suffering, when he had heard that his children had been destroyed, when he had heard that all of his things had been stolen or or, or destroyed, The Bible says, then Job arose and he rent his mantle and he fell down on the ground and he worshiped. He shaved his head, his head, and he fell down on the ground and worshiped and said, naked came out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The fruit of thanksgiving. The sacrifice of praise. Now, once again, it is not difficult to see exhortations unto this end in Scripture. Just open to the Psalms and you'll find any number of Psalms of public worship and praise. And because it is a common theme, we perhaps don't pause to consider. At the beginning of each service, we sing. We lift up our voices together in praise to the Lord. It is deeply rooted in the traditions of God's people to express our praises to God through music. But what are we really doing? Why do we sing? Is it just to kind of get your blood moving? To get you a little bit more awake because you know that you've got the, 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 the grind coming up of one of pastor's sermons? Is it just to kind of wake you up a little bit? Is it to get you really excited? Or is it a part of worship? What does it mean that it is a part of worship? Is it a part of the process of making a sacrifice unto the Lord? The sacrifice of praise. Now, I can get up here in my sermon and I can praise the Lord and I can spend my time with the fruit of my lips giving thanks unto his name, but you're not engaged in that. But do you know where you get to be engaged in that every Sunday? When we sing before the service, before the preaching. And so tonight we sang day by day and we contemplated the regular and consistent faithfulness of the Lord 
day by day, moment by moment. And we thought of, no, and we sang, no, not one, reminding ourselves of the Savior who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, who was in all points tempted like as we, and yet without sin. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Reminding that the assurance that we have in our own salvation is but a foretaste of the glory that is to come. What the Bible calls the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession in Ephesians. And as we lift those praises unto God with a right heart attitude and in a right perspective, not simply out of tradition, not simply out of ritual, but as we lift up our hearts to God through our voices... The Bible speaks of that as a sacrifice of praise. And remember, this is the context within which we find ourselves here, that we have an altar upon which we eat, that the others, that those who serve the tabernacle, that those who are outside of Christ, do not have a right to eat of. And as a part of that altar upon which we eat, we make these sacrifices, and one of those sacrifices is the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks unto his name. The song time of our service is not filler, Christian. It is not there because, well, we got to get through an hour, hour and a half. We got to get somewhere around there. And I'm not going to preach for that long. I, you, never mind. Um, so we better fill, we got to fill it with something, right? That's not why we do it. It's not there to make sure people don't fall asleep. It's not there to get your blood moving. It is there, if I may put it this way. The song portion of our service is the time for us to make a sacrifice of praise unto God before hearing the exhortations of his word. A corporate sacrifice of praise. And we can think through all of the many ways that we might be able to express public praise to the Lord. But one of the most basic ways to do this is really to contribute in that time of corporate singing. Now, we don't stop there. There are many other ways. Annie likes to praise the Lord through poetry. So we've, many of you have been able to read much of that, of, of hers. And there's other ways that each of us might give our sacrifices of praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks unto the Lord. But to invest our hearts into times of praise, we're not singing together to, invest, uh, to impress one another. We aren't singing to see who can and can't sing, who can do it better, who can do it louder. We aren't measuring godliness through some sort of uh, scale of audibility. And for those of you who aren't really singers, may I encourage you to sing anyway. Yes, I know public praise lends oneself to being self-conscious. Yes, I know it's easier for the good singers to praise publicly. But actually, I would even push back against that. That as we make a corporate sacrifice of praise to the God, remember that what is actually happening here is that the reflection of a heart of praise coming out through the fruit of our lips. Just as difficult as it might be for one who is not a seasoned singer, a comfortable singer, to open their mouths so that the fruit of their lips might, might give thanks to the Lord in a posture of public praise, so too... It is difficult, more difficult at the least, 
for those who are good singers to make sure their heart is properly positioned to not be seeking to gain attention for themselves and rather to be reflecting praise into the Lord and the fruit of their lips praising his name and not simply drawing attention to themselves. So we all have work to do to make sure that that time is a time of profitability and fruitfulness as unto the Lord and not as unto men. In the one sense, not being self-conscious of men simply because my gifts and my talents do not necessarily resonate in the area of public praise. And on the other sense, not being tempted to draw myself into a measure of immodesty or self-service through the clarity and the capacity that I have to praise the Lord in such a way. And I remind you of this by reminding you of what is a fairly familiar passage of a time when God was looking to find the next king of Israel because Saul had disqualified himself and Samuel was viewing the children of Jesse. And you know the account. Jesse is sizing them up. And he's sizing them up based upon the external appearances and capabilities. And what does the Lord say there in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7? The Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. You aren't singing for the church when you sing. Anytime you're praising the Lord, in whatever context you might be praising, you aren't praising, you, you aren't expressing what you are expressing as a means by which to impress to establish some sort of place, hierarchy, or anything of the sort. It's the fruit of your lips giving thanks to God's name. The best singer among us is not necessarily the one who has offered the most acceptable sacrifice, but rather the man who is making the true sacrifice of praise to God continually. And, of course, public praise is not just about singing. Indeed, our text says that we are to offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. Does this mean that I need to be singing all day? Well, no, it does not. That would be weird. But rather, we do find that the context of living in which we are called to exist is a context of thanksgiving. Indeed, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. But while 1 Thessalonians reflects the idea of giving thanks, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, adds the element of public thanksgiving, right? So in everything we are to give thanks, that whether I'm eating or drinking or whatsoever I do, I do all to the glory of God, I do all in thanksgiving. That whether it be that I'm out digging a hole or whether I'm inside cleaning a toilet or whether I'm working or whether I'm playing or whether whatever it might be, I can do it with thanksgiving as unto the Lord. Because what a blessing it is that I have hands that work and feet that work and eyes that work and ears that work. And yes, all of those things might be aching because I've been working all day and I'm digging holes and I'm not necessarily enjoying it anymore and I'm hungry. But thank God, all of those pieces of my body are working and I'm still here and there's a reason to be thankful, Christian. And of course, within this layer, however, I focused in on a little bit more on the idea of of auditory praise because that is the layer that we do find here added. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to the Lord, to his name. So Christian, let us not be shy 
in our determinations, not only to have an inward thankfulness for the things that the Lord has given to us and for the ways that God has blessed us, but to allow that inward thankfulness that is reflected in our hearts to find its way out of our heart, out of our lips, and into the ears of others. In everything, even in those things which would lend themselves to discontentment or human sorrow, in Christ, as we gain a perspective of God's sovereign love, we can give thanks in them, knowing that our loving Father overshadows even the deepest of trials. And so we begin with this first sacrifice that we can make unto the Lord on this altar that we eat upon, whereof those who served in the tabernacle had no right to eat because we live in grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it is the sacrifice of praise to God continually that is the fruit of our lips, giving praise, thanks to his name. Verse 16. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Now, once again, Paul paints these commands in the context of sacrifice. But take note as well that what Paul is exhorting here is also an extension of that thankful heart that he established in verse 15. And then in this place of thanksgiving, this continual praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name, we then extend this beyond just the fruit of our lips unto the fruit of our actions. And so these two sacrifices are distinct, but absolutely interrelated. Do good and communicate. Now let's establish what Paul is talking about and then we'll connect the dots. Doing good is not a tricky concept. Luke chapter 6 verse 31 tells us, and as you would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Uh, we call this the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule that is pulled from Luke chapter 6 verse 31. And as you would that men should do to you, do ye unto them, uh, do ye also unto them likewise. This is a little bit of what we're talking about on Tuesday night as it relates to judgment, right? That with what measure ye meet, it shall be meted unto you. So we see a divine principle here that we would do unto others as we would have them do unto us, not just in the manner that that's how uh, a, a, a society is able to function in a manner whereby people are doing right one to another, whereby they are treating one another in a respectful and a proper fashion, uh, whereby people are, are being uh, dignified by virtue of the way that I am treating them. But it also, of course, reflects in the divine. That God will interact with me in a measure that is commiserate to the way that I interact with others. If I want to be forgiven, then I had better forgive. Right? And so we're called to do good to men. Be kind, show respect, be patient with people. Again, I said this evening, this is not a complicated message. This is a simple concept. It's not necessarily mean it's easy. Doing good is not always easy. But it is simple. I'm going to treat you the way I would want to be treated. I'm going to show you the kind of respect that I want you to show me. I'm going to be as patient with you as I would want you to be patient with me if I were in your shoes. I'm going to 
help you the way I would want to be helped. Not difficult in concept. Not necessarily easy in practice, is it? Siblings. Not easy, brother, sister, to treat your sibling the way you would want to be treated. Not easy, neighbor. Not easy, spouse. Not easy, employer. Not easy, friend. But simple. Concept isn't hard to grasp. And all of these things that you would hope people would reflect toward you, you reflect toward them. But then we come to the second concept, to do good and to communicate, which we might consider to be a subset or maybe even an explanation in a sense of doing good, a way to do good, but much more specific. And we'll take a moment to understand this word. When we talk about communication, we think about the manner in which we express ourselves to others. So typically speaking, uh, the idea of when we find in the Bible the word conversation, right? Let your conversation be as it becometh uh, godliness. We talk about the fact that the word conversation in our King James Bibles is not just speaking about the words we say, but it's speaking about the whole of our deportment, the manner in which we deport ourselves toward others. This word communication is an interesting one as well, because when we think of communication, we think of typically two things, right? Verbal communication and nonverbal communication. And if you were to take a class on communication, then you'd find some statistic, which is um, something, depending on who you talk to, between 80% and 92% of, of all of the communication that we have is nonverbal. It has to do with your, um, your posture. It has to do with uh, your arm positions. It has to do with all of these things. And, and, and while I don't know if that statistic is anything other than arbitrary, uh, we do recognize that a large majority of communication, if we're talking about the way that I express myself toward another, is absolutely Nonverbal, right? And so we talk about verbal communication and we talk about nonverbal communication, body language, facial expressions, tone, the words themselves, all of these things. But there's something even deeper and more specific behind this word when we dig into it in the King James. The word is koinonia. And if you were to um, look for a definition of this word, um, the word is most typically translated fellowship. And when we think of fellowship, we think of what happens here after a Sunday service. We think of the things that we do uh, on, on various um, Friday nights or whatever it might be, where we all get together and we hang around together and we spend time in, in encouraging one another and exhorting one another and investing in one another's lives, and that this is fellowship. And indeed, that is fellowship. But in the Bible, this word koinonia, it's used 20 times in our New Testament. Most often it's translated fellowship, but it really carries an idea of participation. Not just interaction, but investment. And when I use that word investment, in the deepest and most consistent sense in the New Testament, when you find this word, almost every time you find it, you will find it in the context of giving of your possessions. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of times we find it, it's actually, it's actually framed within the context of investing in the ministers of the church. 
but it's the idea of taking what is yours and putting it into someone else. It is the idea of investment, participating in someone else's life by virtue of generosity toward them. Giving to help the needs of others. And while there are not enough contextual clues to definitely mark that Paul is using it in the same way here, if Paul isn't using this to talk about being generous to other people, then Paul is using it in a way that is very uncommon for him. It is outside of the ordinary. As in other words, if, we're going to, if, if, if there is any ambiguity in this text, which there is, we're going to default to the fact that what he's saying here is do good to people and be generous to them. Be generous with your resources. To that end, I feel very confident in saying that that is what Paul is calling believers to do here. As a reflection of their thanksgiving and their gratitude unto the Lord, they are to be a people who vocalize their praise, giving thanks unto the Lord's name, who do good to others as the opportunity of good arises, and perhaps as a subset or a specificity to this thing, Be generous. Fellowship. Invest. Participate in the lives of others. You know, when we think about the idea of participation, it really is the case that participation doesn't happen until there's some skin in the game. Now, that skin is not always money, right? I might invest in someone's life by spending hours with them in counsel and in prayer and in Bible study. And I have given of my time to them and invested in them. I might be investing in them with my particular skill set so that I am going out of my way to help them. I have skills. Someone else has needs. I'm going to take my skills and I'm going to use it to serve their needs. Or it might be financially. That someone has a need and I'm going to give out of the abundance of what the Lord has given to me in order to help them in their need. And all of these are the most likely reflection of what Paul is saying here when he says, communicate, fellowship, participate, invest. And this is where we find an important connection. Thankfulness fosters goodness and generosity. Remember how I said before that an unthankful people is an unhappy people? Well, when I am a thankful person, it wells up within me goodness and generosity. Naturally. If I'm not a generous person, if I don't have a urgency within me unto goodness, I need to be wondering whether or not I'm kind of an entitled and selfish person rather than a thankful person. Thankfulness fosters goodness and generosity because to be thankful is to look outward rather than inward. And when I look outward, I find out that there are needs. And we've spoken already about how self is the antithesis of thanksgiving. When I set myself aside, I'm readily positioned to pour myself heart and soul into others. And not only can I pour myself into others, but I absolutely should. Because this is the legacy of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Philippians 2. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto, the, uh, unto death, even the death of the cross. Let this mind be in you. Making yourself of no reputation, setting yourself aside, uh, being humble and obedient even to death. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the part of the sacrifice. You and I don't give burnt offerings anymore. But we do give. God has no need of things. But God does want our expressions of love and devotion. And as I reflect unto God my thanksgiving, as the fruit of my lips expresses praise unto God, the next and natural outworking of this fruit is to translate my thanksgiving into action. And the action that undergirds thanksgiving, thankfulness, is goodness and generosity. So much so that we might actually be able to use one, as I said, to indicate the other. That if I am a thankful person, I will by nature bear the fruit of generosity and goodness in my life. That if I am in fact not a generous person and I have not a natural reflection of goodness in my interactions with others, then I should wonder whether or not I am indeed also a thankful person or not. And we've spoken about this many times in Hebrews as we've talked about faith. And we've connected it to James chapter 2. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. And what we've said about faith from James chapter 2 is that faith is justified by works. I am not justified as in spiritually justified. Justification, the idea of being declared righteous on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, that is not by works, that is by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Bible makes that very clear. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But if I have faith it will invariably manifest itself in works so that I can confidently say that if I have faith, it will manifest itself in works in my life so that when I see works, of course, I can have works without faith, but I cannot have faith without works. If I work to elevate myself and to draw attention to myself and to gratify myself or whatever it might be, of course, to purge some debt in my life, these works are not works that are are a reflection of faith. These are a reflection of self-righteousness. But I cannot have faith in my life without it boiling over into works. To that end, can I really say that I am a thankful person, can I really say that I believe God's word as it relates to gratitude, as it relates to provision, as it relates to his goodness in my life, if I am not a person that is doing good and being generous? To the extent that I can know whether or not I am a thankful person, I can know it by how I interact with those that are around me. Now, this is so basic. And we're not the most basic of churches. 
we dig into the weeds and we dig for the deeper things of God's word and we enjoy a good biblical steak. But every once in a while, it's not just good, but it's important to have a glass of milk with that steak. And that's kind of what this is. Back to basics a little bit. We're coming into a time where there's more economic hardship. We've been going through a time where there's been a lot of trials. And trials do wonderful things in the life of a believer. But there is also a tendency at times in the midst of trials to kind of turn inward a little bit. Because you're busy focusing upon the things that you're focusing on. You've got things in your own life. There are things to do. There, there, there's, there's difficulties at hand. And you kind of forget to look outward. And you kind of forget about those that are around you. And, and these things do happen. And, and then we need to remember. We need to remember simple things like this. That if God has given us such great salvation, and thus through salvation, our faith has tapped us into grace and that grace is not just the grace by which we are saved, but it is the grace in which we stand. Grace from beginning to end. So that when Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not, Christ, but, uh, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the faith, I live, by the, uh, I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We recognize that I live out of an extension of the goodness of God in my life. And so I see these things and I have this grace and then I begin to overflow in thanksgiving and praise to God for the goodness that he has given unto me. And then as I praise the Lord and I thank him for the things, even in the midst of the trials that I'm going through, and my heart is filled with thanksgiving, there is an inevitable urgency in my heart to turn outward and to look toward others and to get my mind off of myself. And this is a good place to be, Christian. And this is the simple exhortation of the day. Let us be thankful because there's so much to be thankful for. God is good. He has been good. He has pulled us out of the pit of our own sinfulness and he has placed us into the palace of the king. And we express this thanksgiving in voice and the fruit of our lips gives thanks to God's name and the sacrifices of praise to God are made through the fruit of our lips in these continual praises. But let us also express our thankfulness not just in the fruit of our lips, but in the fruit of our hands. In goodness and generosity. Pouring into the lives of others out of the abundance of the goodness which we feel and realize through our loving Father in heaven. Some of us have been through a rough patch, but there's no better time to be thankful. And no better way to express that than through purposeful praise, purposeful goodness, and purposeful generosity. So how are we doing this evening? In the midst of an unthankful culture, are we a thankful church? Are you a thankful person? Is your life bearing the fruit of being a thankful person. 
How are you doing in the simple virtues? And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. But to do good and to communicate, forsake not. Why? For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. It's so easy for the fundamentals of the Christian life to fall beneath the cracks of our maturation and growth, of all of the knowledge that we have. It's easy for us to get to the point where a message like this is beneath us. We know this already, Pastor. You don't need to tell us this. But we've talked about knowledge, haven't we? Of course, Paul says, knowledge puffeth up, the charity edifieth. We know that. But what is faith? Faith is when what we know becomes what we believe and so inevitably affects what we do. I don't care if you know this stuff. Do you believe this stuff? And how do we know whether or not we believe this stuff? Well, because if you believe it, you'll do it. There's a lot of things we know that we don't do. But according to the Bible, there's absolutely nothing that you believe that you don't do. It would be a mistake for us thus to let this message and its simplicity pass by us unnoticed. Like with all things more complicated and technical, the complicated and the technical things of the Christian life are built upon some foundation, right? And God forbid that that foundation should begin to crack and chip away simply because we're so busy dealing with the stuff that's built on top of it. The Christian life is built upon the simple virtues of thanksgiving, of goodness, of generosity, of an understanding of the things that we've been studying over the last several weeks through grace. And if these things haven't found a place in your life for a while, then maybe it's time to pull out the patch kit and start patching the cracks in that foundation of your Christian life. Start working on the simple things again. Thankfulness. Goodness. Generosity. May I encourage you? Difficult times. For some of us, They're past. For some of us, we're in them. For some of us, they're yet to come. But there's never a bad time to be thankful. Let's take a look outside of ourselves. Let's invest in some deliberate thanksgiving, some deliberate goodness, some intentional generosity, sacrifices unto God, sacrifices of which God is well pleased. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.